This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. It is mid-July. It is right after the Emmy nominations, but we're going to talk about movies for a little bit because festival season is right around the corner. If you follow the Toronto Film Festival on Twitter, you've gotten used to their eyes emoji tweets, uh, which follow their announcement of, so far not a full lineup, but a single title from their lineup. So we'll talk about that. The Venice Film Festival lineup is on the horizon, and we've got maybe a couple films we can look at as potentials. Uh, We also have new movies. Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. You heard David talking to Leslie Manville about it last week. We'll talk about that and where the crowd Sing. Um, I am making everyone go back to Top Gun, the great box office success story of the summer, to talk about that a little bit in terms of awards. Um, and then we have a few final Emmy things to get into, um, including your listener questions. So let's start with Tiff. As we record on Tuesday, the big announcement today was The Woman King, which if you've heard of, you might have heard of from Vanity Fair in the first look piece that we ran. Uh, it joins Bros, the rom-com with Billy Eichner, Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel, uh, a Canadian film called Brother, and then a adaptation of a novel by Angie Thomas called On the Come Up as the only titles we know of so far. Um, Rebecca, does this all feel like what we would expect Tiff to have so far? I think this is what we would expect Tiff to have this year. I, you know, last year was a little muted, and I'm really excited to have it back to form because TIFF is always such a great festival. And and so far, like having a big splashy Knives Out premiere and now these more anticipated films like The Woman King, it does feel pretty promising. Yeah, The Woman King, like Bros, had a September release date. So those of us who kind of spend our summer looking toward the fall, like I think would have guessed that either of them might show up. But it's really it's nice to see them both on there. I thought that Woman King might be opening night, but mm. it sounds like maybe not. So and usually that's not every year, but many years it's a big commercial film that's coming out shortly thereafter. So um, I would be curious to see if there's something that's not on our radar that could be filling that slot, or they might go with some sort of music doc, which they've done in the past, or maybe a Canadian film. But yeah, I mean, I think Woman King, we were we were all pretty certain, just given that it's out later in September, that would be a great place for it to debut, and similar with Bros. But yeah, those three films, I mean, that's a big starry lineup already. Mm-hmm. And and those are all world premieres at Toronto. And Toronto has, year by year, I think, had a little trouble getting its own world premieres because Venice and Telluride are right before it, and they kind of snap up a lot of the award stuff. So I think it's a good return to form for the festival so far. 
Yeah, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but Toronto, in terms of putting in a crowd pleaser, I think it is the place that you want to be. And that's not always the case. Like Joker, I don't know if Joker's a crowd pleaser, but Joker's a big commercial movie that premiered at Venice, so it's not always the case. But I think it's really smart for, like, movies like Bros and, and Glass Onion and, you know, possibly The Woman King, which seems a little bit more dramatic, but to, like, really have that populist spirit, which I think Toronto really excels at. Yeah, it's interesting how they're announcing this lineup this year. It feels different. <laughs> it it's does. just, uh, I mean, the rumor is the full lineup isn't going to come out till August, which is late. It's usually, I think, the end of July and that they're going to keep doing these sort of one-off announcements, which I guess is a way to build anticipation, but uh, not as easy for those of us trying to plan our, <laughs> our festival coverage. <laughs> And I wonder if it's a way, you know, I think we all expected Toronto to come back in full force after two quiet years. But I wonder if Sully Building is like, hey, you, filmmaker who's not sure about going to Toronto, look at what we've got so far. Like they're kind of building the case for themselves by rolling it out slowly. Yeah, I think one interesting facet of of Toronto is I believe they are doing a virtual component as well, right? Oh, yeah, that that was kind of announced. I don't know if they've like walked that back at all, but my hunch would be that a lot of the bigger films, studio films, whatever, aren't going to be on the virtual yeah. platform. So I think that's one thing that, that maybe festivals like Toronto had trouble with last year, maybe Sundance to some extent in 2020 is that like, or sorry, 2021 is like convincing distributors or producers or whoever that like, no, 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 it's going to get the real festival thing or or, yeah. or the virtual thing is just as good, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's probably been a lot of negotiation that the festivals do not talk about because they don't want to, obviously. I would think that this year's in-person Toronto will be significantly more robust than whatever they do online, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a problem even last year with virtual Toronto, like a lot of stuff wound up at New York Film Festival or in places where like there was a, like a more substantial in-person component, which I don't blame them for. Like I remember seeing Nomadland in my basement during <laughs> yeah. Toronto in 2020 and like being really grateful to see it. But it's, it's not it's not the same. Yeah. And, you know, last year there were people um, because Toronto didn't really communicate that well, you know, what was going to be available online versus in person. I went in person and I was one of like six people <laughs> there. <laughs> Um, but it meant I got to see stuff that wasn't online. And then people at home were like, oh, no, I thought I could watch Dune. And it was like, you thought Warner Brothers was going to give you Dune? <laughs> on but then a they, streaming put it, link? they put it on HBO Max like I a know, month later. I know, but they, it, that was never going to happen. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But this, this feels a lot more clear cut thus far, which I think is good. Yeah. Richard, you mentioned that the Venice lineup is expected. Um, you are going to be in Venice for us as well. We don't really know anything, but are there other titles like coming up in the fall that you have your eye on as potential Venice options? Yeah, I mean the, the thing the, the the titles I keep hearing when when Venice is brought up is Darren Aronofsky, who has The Whale with Brendan Fraser. Damien Chazelle has premiered his last two films at Venice, so oh, I think about like um like First Man and uh, La La Land where Emma Stone won the Best Actress Prize uh, on her way to winning an Oscar. So I would think that Babylon would be there because it's Even though that's a, Chris, that's a Christmas release, right? So it's coming a lot later. It is a lot later, and that might mean that I'm wrong, but that's a name I just keep hearing brought up, um, as well as Luca Guadagnino with uh, Bones and All, uh, which we'll be talking about in, well, the book that it's based on uh, later uh, ne next month. Yeah, yeah. At the end of this uh, episode, we can give the lineup for our book club in August. Yeah. Good reminder. So, I don't know. I also hear like people wishful thinking about Ari Aster's film, Disappointments Boulevard, which we don't even know if it's done yet. 
But I would anticipate like a really big lineup. Noah Baumbach um, has the adaptation of the Don DeLillo novel, uh, White Noise. Um, it's kind of funny that a Noah Baumbach movie is called that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the alternate title for Marriage Story, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, so I don't know. I, I, I'm anticipating big. The question there is always like, okay, so what does Venice get? What does Toronto get? What does Telluride share? And what does Telluride, which doesn't announce its lineup until the day the festival starts, what is that going to world premiere? Because I they have some stuff that I think I could see, like she said, being big at Telluride. Um, yeah, I was going to note we got a, a trailer for that last yeah. week, I guess, which is a, a strong indicator that something is going to show up uh, somewhere in the early fall. There are certain movies that seem to kind of grab a an American moment, a political moment that feel perfect for the Telluride audience, you know, mm. um, and they can they can they can shine a little bit brighter, bigger because they, they're not trying to compete with all of the glamour and drama of, of, of Venice. So I don't know. I think she, she said feels like that could be a strong debut at, at Telluride, but maybe it'll be at Venice too. I don't know. I'm also curious which films try to do all the triple crown. Yeah. <laughs> which is always a sign that, you know, the studio is very, very hot on it. I, I think La La Land did and Shape of Water mm-hmm. did, if I remember Shape correctly. Shape of Water did. And obviously they went on to really big awards campaigns, so... In an upcoming issue of Vanity Fair, uh, David, who's not here today, but we'll talk about him, uh, wrote a piece about that sprint between Venice and, and Telluride and talked to Guillermo del Toro and Maggie Gyllenhaal both, who like went to Venice, premiered the movie, went to Telluride, then went back to Venice because they won a prize, mm-hmm. uh, which is just something people do every year. And if you get to do it, it means great things for your movie. So you're lucky to do that. And it's an opportunity to see celebrities and publicists at the most tired they'll ever be. <laughs> and they have no idea what time it is or where, what country they're in. And it's, uh, I feel very, I mean, I, I knew, I knew a publicist once, um, who, one who we all know, I think, who went to Telluride, left, flew to Venice, flew back to Telluride, and then went to Toronto. And it's just like, how are you? <laughs> where are I, I you? Just, I couldn't, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Back to She Said for a second, though. Um, you were speculating about me in Venice. I'm reading the book because it will also be in our book club. Again, stay tuned to the end for more. Um, and there's a very, very pivotal scene set at the Venice Film Festival. So maybe that's enough to um, to get it there. Oh, yeah, that's a fair point. Although, does the Venice Film Festival want to remind people that they used to have <laughs> not, certain... not their fault that yeah, Harvey Weinstein behaved true. despicably there. But yes, that's a fair. that's also fair. One other title I wanted to throw out that I don't... I haven't heard any buzz about it at all, but... Searchlight Pictures sent out an email last week announcing a release date for Empire of Light, the Sam Mendes film uh, with Olivia Coleman and Colin Firth set at a movie theater, which, I mean, if you want to look for Oscar buzz, uh, that's that's where to that go. That's the bingo card, yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, I'm gonna, let me just read the logline. Set in an English seaside town in the early 1980s, Empire of Light is a powerful and poignant story about human connection and the magic of cinema. Ding, 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 ding. So anyway, that got set for a December 9th release date. Um, I don't know if that means it'll be at a festival, but again, sending out a summer press release about your December movie like kind of sets my like the hairs in the back of my neck. Yeah. Rebecca, yeah. do you have anything you're speculating about at this point that you just hope might come up on a lineup? Um, you know, I, I'm also very interested in in where I've been very hot on Babylon for a long time, and, and I think the bomb back, I'm, I'm curious about where... I mean, I feel like it's inevitably at a festival. I just don't know where, which ones it's going to end up at. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The other one I wanted to throw out was the Martin McDonough movie, Banshees of Inisherin. I got to work on that. Anyway, it's set for a fall release date. Uh, So, again, a Searchlight movie that I hope we can look for. And also Ticket to Paradise, the um, Julia Roberts, uh, George Clooney 
comedy from Old Parker is set for an October release. I can see that movie at Toronto. If Froze is there, why not? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I would probably, like, skip some acclaimed foreign release to go see that at Toronto. I can see that decision. I believe that Toronto is a for-profit festival. And so I think that, like, selling tickets to that at the Princess of Wales Theatre, like, that would that yeah. would sell out probably. So Well, and presumably, like, they they need to bring people back after these last two years. So can't blame them. Oh, um, I just remembered one thing. By the oh, time yeah. this episode goes up, I'll have a first look on The Good Nurse, which stars mm. two Oscar winners, Eddie Redmayne and Jessica Chastain. And so that film is a Netflix film, but I feel like could possibly make a run at one of these festivals as well. Yeah. The fact that Netflix is going all in with Glass Onion at TIFF, I think, shows that they'll be back in force in festival season again this year. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Milli Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Milli Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, let's go to movies that you can see now anywhere that you want to. Um, right now, you can go see Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Like I said, David talked to Leslie Manville on this podcast last week, but we didn't really get into the movie itself. And I haven't seen it yet, but I kind of like want to save it as a treat for myself when I want air conditioning and a, and a nice summertime escape. Uh, Richard, it sounds like that really is the vibe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It lives up to its title. Mrs. Harris does, in fact, go to Paris. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Uh, well, sorry, Mrs. Aris, as the books, the book series was called, as a sort of Cockney thing. But we in America can't process that, so um, it has to be Harris with the H. Yeah, you know, it's Leslie Manville who you can listen to David's interview with her. But you know, she was—I think she was kind of last in a big way in *Let Him Go*, the Kevin Costner, Diane Lane thriller, where she played this matriarch villain of a of a sort of murderous family and that was a complete departure from her phantom thread role or her previous mike lee roles so and this is a new thing yeah you know even still so it's fun to see leslie manville who's a great actor getting international recognition you know long into a storied career anyway she's so good in this she plays a you know working class woman she's a um, basically a housekeeper for various wealthy clients in london who just gets it in her head that after seeing a Dior dress uh, at one of her clients' houses, she says, you know, I kind of want that. And she 
scrapes the money together here and there, some luck, some other things, and uh, goes to Dior, it, the, the headquarters in Paris, and uh, says, I want to get a dress made. And it's kind of about how she affects the company and pe- the people who work there or sort of are in its orbit, how that all affects her. It's a very sweet, familiar kind of fish out of water story, but it's made, I think, fresh and fun because Leslie Manville at the center is just such an appealing performance. Yeah, I I wasn't sure I was in the mood for this. I don't know if it's just because everything is so such a bummer sometimes in when it comes to the news and stuff, but it, it turns out it was exactly what I needed. I, I found it so charming and obviously has this sort of open-hearted optimism that I, I just needed that like in my veins right now. And it, it's such an enjoyable watch. And, and I just, I loved having a movie that, ties everything up with a sweet little bow and if you want that experience this is this is the perfect movie for that and it's also a movie where like they're all in Paris but they're running into each other everywhere which I (laughs) there's like 10 people who live in Paris (laughs) which like you know those sweet sorts of movies are just the best and and Leslie is so so good in it and it's interesting because I there's there's a scene in it where obviously there's a, a fashion show I don't know, if Richard, if this stood out to you, but the models are super diverse, which obviously they were not in the 1950s in a Dior runway show. And I thought that was an interesting sort of modern choice that they made with the film. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. I think they, I think the there were certain little tweaks to the movie. It's not an intensely realistic period piece, mm-hmm. I guess you could mm-hmm. say. Um, and, and speaking of that fashion show, so Jenny Bevan, you know, the multi-Oscar winning oh, yeah. costume designer. She just won. Did, she won this year, right? For Cruella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she did the costumes and you're thinking, OK, so what does that mean? Because these are Dior dresses, but it, uh, I guess they're kind of recreations with some tweaks. But whatever they are, they look incredible, as satisfying as you'd want them to be. And um, so there's that aspect of the movie, too. It's really appreciating that kind of couture craft in a fun way. And I think also not in a way that feels like conspicuous consumption. You know, it's not really a movie that's like, if you spend this much money on some, on one item of clothing, you're going to feel good about your life. It's more about like, sometimes just shake up the routine, do something new, accept a loss and move forward or, or whatever. And the dress in that case is just a metaphor for whatever else, a cooking class or a, I don't know, going on a new date or whatever. And I think in that way, it avoids a sort of consumerist bent that it maybe looked like it had from just the trailers. You know, between this Top Gun, which we'll talk about, Elvis, and then where the crawdads sing, which we're getting to, like the adult-focused movies of the summer have been pretty remarkable. Thor is still dominating the box office, but I feel like it's not really the story of the summer nor Jurassic World. It's like movies that adults actually want to leave the house to go see. As as grown-ups, uh, are we just proud of reclaiming this? Is this where we all become proudly middle-aged and put in our lot with the Mrs. Harris's of the world? Sure, yeah. yeah I mean, why not? I mean, going to see Mrs. Harris and even Crawdads, which I didn't love, yeah. but like at its best, Crawdads has that glimmer of like a movie you might have seen in the 90s, you know, mm-hmm. nice glossy literary adaptation set in the South, like very fried green tomatoes, very, you know, other other things like that. And it felt good because what have I been seeing for work uh, on the big screen for the past six weeks, eight weeks is the Jurassics and the Thors and the one else, you know, whatever else is. Min- well, no, I didn't see that. I'll, I'll, I'll confess. I've never seen a second of a minion. <laughs> I don't know anything about them. You just encounter them everywhere in pop culture. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know I know enough. intimately what they are, but um, 
But um, yeah, so I think, you know, Mrs. Harris, I don't know how that's done. I, I, I kind of wish they had waited to release that not the same week as Crawdads, because yeah. Crawdads, Crawdads did pretty well. It made like, what, $17 million? Yeah. Which is significant for a $24 million movie. Yep. Um, and I just wish that like, okay, just wait a couple more weeks and then have Mrs. Harris be the counter programming to Bullet Train or whatever. You know? Yeah, have all of August yourself. I think Harris will be a very like platformy, steady release. So I don't even think it's available to many people yet. But, yeah, it opened um, in 980 theaters. Oh, um, so Crawdads actually that's... wasn't Crawdads was in 3600 though. So there's room to okay. grow. Okay, well that's bigger than I thought, I guess, for yeah. Harris. But um, you know, so go see it, so you can you know somehow communicate to the powers that be that like this stuff actually has an audience that's worth you know that's that's willing to go out to the theaters for it. Yeah, I do want to ask you about Crawdads, Richard, because you reviewed that as well. Did not seem to enjoy it as much as uh, Mrs. Harris. Um, did you read the book actually? Uh, no, I did not. Mm-mm. Okay, Rebecca, have you read that book? I have read the book. Okay, yeah, same. Um, I didn't love the book either, so I feel like my guess is that the movie is just the book, which, like, as you sit down, you're like, wait, this is what this story is about? Um, but I'm curious about how you feel like it is as, um, A, you know, a star thing for Daisy Edgar-Jones and then Reese Witherspoon's power as a producer. Like, I feel like she's been such a vivid—she's not in the movie, but she's, like, such a presence behind it. This is a—, a pretty good feather in her cap right yeah i mean it's big you know it's one of the best-selling novels of all time um and wow. she had something to do with that because it was in her book club right mm-hmm. so yeah having the rights and and getting the movie made and it's a, it's a there are a lot of women behind the camera in in a cool way and yeah on paper it's great i i think that in practice it falls prey to the pitfalls are not avoided uh, of, of many literary adaptations, which is that like they just are like this is the story. Then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and now now, now the movie's over. And you're just like, yeah. there needs to be some texture here. There needs to be, you know, because I've read snippets of the book, and it's like, yeah, there is this. There is some elegant, flowery internal writing here, observation, you know, like inter- in- interior monologue kind of stuff, and like you need to find a way not to recreate that literally on the screen, but to supplement that loss with something else cinematic and yeah and uh the director just doesn't figure that out and i think also another problem is like daisy edgar jones and maybe it's the character and not so much the actor but you're like ah this doesn't really make any sense at all um you know not to be whatever but like we're talking about the british daughter of like the head of sky entertainment (laughs) like playing (laughs) an american foundling recluse in the in the the swamps of North Carolina. And it's like, this just doesn't sync up. You know, I, I don't know where she had an access point to this character. And I don't think the script really gives her one anyway. So I think those two things combined, it's just, it's a weak adaptation script wise. And the performance doesn't really sync up with the, the role. The, those two things kind of sank it for me. And then of course, there's the resurfaced stuff about Delia Owens herself and her past in Zambia with her husband and stepson and their efforts to be anti-poaching that might have led to a very like extrajudicial murder, um, kind of tainting one's perception of this world that she's built that uh, feels very specifically drawn on particular race lines in a way that I think has obviously uh, rankled some people ever since the book came out. Yeah, I wondered if the movie um, eased up on that because there's like really just a couple of significant black characters in the book and they are play very helpful supporting roles to the white characters and otherwise have nothing going on. And I wondered if the, the movie would adjust that. Not at really, all. no. Oh, great. Okay. 
I mean, just give me the movie about a writer who is wanted for murder and then writes a book about a woman who is wanted. I mean, just give it to me. Just just do it. Who's also something of a conservationist. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I I joke to a friend. That's the movie I want to see. Afterward. And I was being, this is hyperbole. I'm, I'm not saying anything about Delia Owens's guilt or whatever, but I, was, I just said to my friend who I brought to the screening, I was like, she might as well have called that if I did it. Like, <laughs> like, it it's like so close to home when you actually look into it. You're like, oh my God. Um, but yeah, I just think it was inevitable that that New Yorker piece and a sal- I believe salon piece. Slate, yeah. Uh, resurface Slate, sorry. Um, it was That was inevitably going to happen when the movie was being released because it was kind of, a you know, they did a good job of marketing and it was a buzzy release. And I read the New Yorker piece before seeing the movie. And, and yeah, it does put a weird gloss on the whole thing. Or gloss is probably not the word. Stain, maybe. And uh, I, I don't think that is the movie's main problem. I th- you can separate that from the, the text of the movie. I think the text of the movie is just kind of weak. And, and it just feels very perfunctory in terms of adaptation. I wonder how much the people who love, who are like coming out to see this movie, I mean, it made $17 million, like you said, like, I wonder how much that's coming through or if the people who care about this or the people like us are just like, ah, like, I haven't been able to tell how much of it's part of the narrative for the people who actually went to see the movie or loved the book. Well, I mean, Delia Owens's name got huge hearty applause at the premiere that I went to. So, wow. uh, you know, I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's permeated that much. And if, even if it has, I think people are like, ah, it was her husband. It was 30 years ago, whatever. Which like, I can I can understand that compartmentalization, but people seemed very into Delia Owens at the at the premiere. She wasn't there, but you know, her, her name was she she is who sold this book, or yeah. so she's who sold this movie in some way. I, I guess. In oh to yeah, I think so because I think that the, the intended audience for this might might have seen normal people, but maybe that show skewed a bit younger. So I don't think that Daisy Edgar Jones is really a draw. Mm. It's not a terribly starry cast. You know, Harris Dickinson. Michael Hyatt, who plays one of the sort of people, like adults kind of over, you know, caretaking for for the lead character. She's been she's been around forever and she's a great undersung actress. And so it's fun to see her in something like this big. But her role as, as one half of this very kindly couple that's not fleshed out beyond that um, is a bit disappointing. I am curious to see about Reese Witherspoon, powerhouse producer, where she's headed from here. She's got, like, some other book adaptations in the works. She's adapting the book that Dolly Parton wrote with James Patterson. Sure. Um, but I, I do think that, like, her her strength only seems to be growing from here, which is impressive. Yeah, she's such a force to be reckoned with, especially when it comes to book to film. I think she just does amazing stuff in that genre. Uh, well, going back to the box office for a minute, we don't really talk about that much around here, but you kind of can't avoid reading about Top Gun Maverick at this point. Like, it is such a crazy phenomenon on the level which we certainly haven't seen since before COVID, and it's been a long while since then. Uh, it's made $618 million domestic and keeps – it's like in the top – it's the no, it was the number four at the box office this past week in its eighth week of release, which just does not happen anymore. Um, and when we talked about it uh, from Cannes with you guys, I think we were all seeing people being like, Tom Cruise is going to win Best Actor for Top Gun. And we were like, all right, come on, guys. But I'm kind of convincing myself that this is a possibility. And, like, we've also got Austin Butler out there who we've talked about. Like, I think if two Best Actor nominees are from summer releases, like, that would be really weird. But I, I can't dismiss the idea that Top Gun is such a phenomenon and Tom Cruise is so the center of it that some kind of, like, career Oscar nomination or win could be possible. Do you guys want to tell me that I'm crazy? 
I think you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I needed someone to snap me out of it. I, I mean, I know it's hard because it's true. It's like you read about Dom Cruz every day right now for eight weeks. And it, yeah. it feels like that. And, and, you know, he has had this career that I do think people might want to give that sort of tribute to. But every year there's box office movies that are huge, huge hits and then they're not an awards thing and also obviously I just feel like that's eventually going to fall into this even if the landscape is very different now than it has been because we are still doing this whole uh saved theatrical releases narrative for this film so yeah to me it I would I I would love to see them try I would find that very interesting and would be very excited to talk about it all season but I I don't see it happening that's not a bad reason to launch a campaign. If people want, if like it gives people something to talk about and they want to talk about it, like there are campaigns built on worse or less. Yeah. But last year there was even a conversation of like, Spider-Man saved the box office. Let's give it some Oscars. And that never obviously came yeah. to fruition. So. That oh, conversation sorry, seemed to annoy people more than Top Gun mm. speculation mm-hmm. does, you mm-hmm. know, because I think Top Gun is appealing more to a sort of, I guess Spider-Man did appeal to some nostalgia as well. But like, this feels a little bit more... I mean, for better or for worse, like nostalgia for a lost era, (laughs) a lost country. I don't know. You know, there's something bigger about this um, and less kind of corporately cynical. But I my 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 thing with Cruz after, you know, the movie started doing really well, because I don't know if listeners remember, I predicted this movie would bomb. So shows what I know. (laughs) Um, You should have reminded them of that. Well, I'm going to have to I have to own up to this stuff, Katie. Um, But uh, is that okay? maybe he won't get any nominations or whatever for this but if Mm. he wants a competitive acting oscar all he has to do is get one plum supporting role in some Mm -hmm. fall movie 2023 or 2024 preferably next year just like rush that into production and he will win on a wave of goodwill Uh i think Mm -hmm. i think that's the way to do it but i don't know if that's really what he cares about anymore you know i think he wants to make these big spectaculars that prop up the industry he's good at doing that kind of against all odds at times um so maybe that's kind of his new mission but it's kind of like with j-lo and hustlers it's like stick with it do one more and she does she doesn't seem to have chosen that option she's gone back to rom-coms you know leaned heavily more heavily into the music again married ben affleck married ben affleck but, you know, I, I just think that if Tom Cruise wanted it, this is the time is to, is to book that role with some respected director, have it be a little category fraud. It's kind of a second lead, but you could you could run it in supporting Brad Pitt style and and just walk away with it easily. My argument of why this wouldn't follow the Spider-Man path is that Top Gun, it's like, it's, it's IP, you know, it's a sequel to a movie no one was really begging for a sequel to, but it's performance-driven in a way that Spider-Man and in a way that most modern blockbusters aren't. Like, it is it is special as a blockbuster, you know, less so than Mad Max Fury Road, but I think it's like, it's very technically interesting, which we've talked about, but I think his charisma and his presence as like the guiding force of that movie is special and is something that like, that's a different kind of nostalgia for like, for blockbusters that were based on star persona and not franchise building. And I, I wonder if that would make a campaign for him specifically. Like, I think if, you know, if you try to campaign Maverick for best picture, like, I think that's going to be a different thing. But I think, like, Tom Cruise, you are special. You are the you are what made this savior of the box office possible. Like, it seems like the most logical Oscar nomination for this movie for me, if you're going to give it anything. Other than Gaga. 
Oh, yeah, obviously. And sound, probably. Yeah. Oh, we also <laughs> didn't mention, speaking of Gaga's competition, that Taylor Swift's original song for Crawdads is eligible. So here oh. I was a couple weeks ago thinking Gaga had already won that Oscar. And now it's like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. Taylor Swift is in the mix now, too. Uh, I feel like every year we get ourselves really excited for a starry original song category, and it just goes in weird directions instead. So. Right, right. They're like, here's this power ballad from a movie no one saw. <laughs> and, no, know, yeah, like, the, the Diane Warren uh, yeah, path, yeah. and now she's getting her honorary. Yeah, I mean, I don't want... I- I don't want to be the one beating the drum for Tom Cruise because, like, I think when you have the ability to stump for award stuff, which we do to some degree, like, you want to pick smaller stuff that needs more attention. But, like, I, I see the case for Maverick in a, in a way I didn't, you know, when it was just a hit, not like a massive industry rescuing hit. Um, and I'm curious if other people will start thinking the same way. It does seem to have turned some kind of corner on that front. Because I think part of it is that it's just it's we're still talking about it. And it yeah. came out in Hollywood terms, like, ages ago yeah um or new hollywood terms i mean it's funny i just did an episode of another podcast about an old movie and it's like you just remember that like in the mid-century of last century like movies were just like in theaters for years (laughs) you know like they would leave for a bit and come back and whatever so we have a much shorter attention span these days and the fact that top gun is still making money still being spoken about um it seems to kind of take on new facets every week or two and I, i think that that could mean something, you know. I don't. Th- I don't. I don't think you're quite crazy, Katie. I think, but I think it's still a long shot. Sure. I also think he would probably have to campaign, and I am curious yeah. what, you know, Tom Cruise is, is has leads a very um, controlled life. I think when it comes to his public appearances and things like that, and and press especially. So, I think maybe he can just have a campaign based on his name and legacy alone. But I, I feel like he would have to actually pound the pavement a little bit. I mean, we do have a very recent example of a megastar uh, kind of breaking out a little bit to campaign for an Oscar, which is Will Smith, which went really well until it didn't. Um, and I think Tom Cruise would not be likely to uh, have a public outburst, but I would have said the same thing for Will Smith. Where I could see Tom Cruise winning a, a significant award for this movie, I, th- I think it could be the Producers Guild Awards. Oh, interesting. Because what a feat to have wrestled this thing back into life 30 plus years later to have the movie sit on a shelf during COVID and then basically be the first thing, well, second thing after Spider-Man or however you want to put these. One of the things that like brought audiences back to theaters, older audiences too, maybe that feat, you know, with him and Bruckheimer and everybody else would be enough to get him a prize for that. That could be, that would be interesting. So would you guys put more money on Austin Butler at this point being an Oscar nominee than Tom Cruise? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, think so. But I feel like that movie kind of came and went in a way. Fizzled, I mean, yeah. it's still making money, too. Like, yeah. it was number five at the box office this past week. Um, it's made it's cracked $100 million in, domestically. Which is significant. I mean, that is yeah. that is good for that movie. But I don't, I don't see people talking about it in the same way. But maybe that's no. just because of who yeah, I'm Yeah, it's not quite to. the same level of phenomenon. Um, but the way that Baz Luhrmann keeps making movies where was like, this has got to be it, right? Like, no one's going to go see this. And he's like, nope, made $100 million. Bye. <laughs> like, he's just... Yeah, yeah. He's got something that works. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.
Okay, so we'll we'll return to Emmys uh, briefly. We do want to keep hearing your Emmy questions and text us and tweet at us or whatever else. And, of course, we'll be talking about uh, categories more going forward. But I did um, get a question from Paul in subtext who wanted to ask about Hannah Einbinder being a continuing place in supporting for Hacks. And then had a sidebar, which is that the three guest actress nominations for Hacks uh, Laurie Metcalf, Harriet Sampson Harris, and Jane Adams were all guest stars on Frasier, which Gene Smart won two Emmys for in the guest <laughs> actress role. Wow. I mean, I think the the category fraud thing for Hannah Einbinder kind of we had that conversation back when uh, back last season when Hacks first happened. But do you see it continuing to be a problem for a show like this that like once she's in there, she's category frauded and she's just going to get overlooked? Like, doesn't is there ever ability to change something like this, or does anyone even care other than awards nerds like us? I just think that category is so competitive that obviously we all understand the lead actress category you mean well the supporting for hannah you're you're asking if hannah could ever win in this supporting category yeah or this listener is asking that i don't think it's because people you know are turned off by the fact that she should be lead but they don't want to put her against gene smart and and all of that i just think this category is really really hard and it wouldn't matter that whole thing wouldn't matter because, I mean, you look at this list of how many is it this year? One, uh, eight women. It's eight, just, yeah. you know, I mean, that's already sort of insane. And there's a lot of um, splits between shows and everything that to me, it just feels like they're always going to give Gene Smart the the win, you know what I mean? And the love. And then in the supporting, it's just not a lock for Hannah ever. I also think that the putting... Hannah in supporting and Gene Smart in lead is just meta commentary on the show. <laughs> you know, mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. no, you're never going to be the star, baby. <laughs> it's always me. <laughs> um, and I think that probably both sides are like fine with that. Um, yeah. But I, 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 you know, I think increasingly now on TV, especially, it, it feels like these categories aren't really don't don't always make sense because. So many shows are ensemble and, you know, it's not like a movie where there's a, I mean, some shows obviously have a lead or two leads or whatever, but like a lot of TV these days is not quite built that way. And so sometimes these categories just feel sort of arbitrary. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine about uh, C. Martin and Martin Short both being nominated as uh, lead actors in Only Murders in the Building, um, which is fascinating, especially because Selena Gomez doesn't get nominated as an actress, um, but they both got in there. And it's actually been a long time since um, two actors were nominated as co-leads in a comedy like this, which I thought was an interesting way that like these rules all seem set in stone until the right thing comes along and they can break it. Yeah, and you think about the Friends cast famously always went supporting, you know, as like a sign of like unity or whatever. And uh, only, I think, what, two of them won? And, I, and like, Sex in the City would, like, do, like, SJP would, was lead, right? And then, and that made sort of some sense. But, yeah, I think it's just a real case-by-case basis. And I I think the, the weird thing with Hacks is that I think it's easier to make the argument that Hannah Einbender's the lead and Gene Smart's the supporting right. <laughs> mm. character because we're kind of entering this world through Hannah's eyes. Yeah. But, um, oh, well. I was looking at that supporting actress category that um, Hannah Einbinder is in, and I think it is one of the more sneakily uh, competitive ones we've got. I think we talked about this last week, but you've got Hannah Waddingham, who won last year kind of in a walk, but I feel like the competition is a lot more interesting this year. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel Hacks, Abbott Elementary, Saturday Night Live, Ted Lasso are all represented in there, and I don't I don't know. I don't know who I would put my money on at this point. It's a, It will be an interesting one to watch and see if a winner becomes clear in the coming months. I think it would be cool for Cheryl Lee. Ralph. Um, yeah. she's, in, she's in that category, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 I think that would be kind of neat and, you know, kind of a not career capping. Her career is 
still got lots of time left in it, but I just mean like, you know, it's been a long time since Dreamgirls and uh, she's been very vocal about how this show is the best thing she's done since Dreamgirls. Maybe people in the industry are paying attention to, uh, to that. It's also her first Emmy nomination. And it's so. like, what? It, her career is so phenomenal. And I, I totally agree with you, Richard. It would be nice to see her get that win. And I, I don't know. I think it's, to me, it feels like we just have to kind of wait, of, wait and see how much the Ted Lasso phenomenon continues or, it, you know, if there is room for others this year, especially in that category. I was realizing that this time last year um, when the Emmy nominations came out, Ted Lasso season two was airing and they're not airing it right now. I don't know when season three is supposed to come back, but, um, you know, I think that show would have really succeeded regardless. But that was a real benefit to it. And now it's only Murders in the Building that's trying that out. And I'm curious about how that will play out. Um, about Shirley Ralph, though, I love what Quinta Brunson said to you, Rebecca, in the interview episode that aired earlier this week about how um, she had told Shirley Ralph, like, I'm going to give you Emmy-worthy material. Uh, yeah. And then it panned out. I know. Yeah. <laughs> she saw the future in some way. I love that she said that because no one ever admits that they think about things like that. No, you know, I when know. When they're race. But it, it is true, too. I do really think she held up on that promise. And I feel like anytime you watch, like, you know, a behind-the-scenes show, like, I think even Barry might have had this, where, like, people are in production on something being like, you'll get an Emmy for this. Like, they, <laughs> it seems like people do it a lot and then just never admit it. Uh, so good for you for being honest, Quinta Brunson. A good time to rewatch for your consideration, though. Just oh, God. Like, mm-hmm. keep that in mind. <laughs> doesn't, it, doesn't it make you feel dirty for obsessing over this as much as we do? For- <laughs> well, I don't know. But I think that movie, obviously, is such an overstatement. I've always wondered... What happened to Christopher Guest awards-wise to make him make that movie? Mm. You know, was there something or he got that bug in his ear? Someone told him that, oh, Best in Show is going to win something? I don't know. It's just very, very strange to me. But Yeah, or like someone he knows, like, went through it. I'd be... Yeah, yeah. I maybe... what Jamie Lee Curtis has to say about awards buzz. Yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe that's... We should maybe do a, a rewatch of that sometime. That'd be fun to talk about on this show. All right. Put it down. That does it for this week's show. As we said, we'll be doing a book club in August talking about books that will be adapted into films that, as far as we know, are coming out this fall. We'll be talking about Women Talking, a novel being adapted by Sarah Polly. She said the book written by Jodi Cantor and Megan Twoey about their Harvey Weinstein investigation. Bones and All, a novel being adapted by Luca Guadagnino. And then Killers of the Flower Moon, the nonfiction book that Martin Scorsese is adapting later this year. Um, Go check them out from the library. Buy the books. Read along with us. It's going to be a really fun month. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rye Laws. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. You can also sign up to text with us at JoinSubtext.com slash LittleGoldMen or text 213-513-7180. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best reason that David Canfield missed this week's show goes to me. Married Ben Affleck. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. 
That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.